Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from Seedcamp. We're sitting here in sunny Las Vegas at the Collision Conference and I have in front of me Josh Elman, partner at Greylock Partners. And uh, it's always a, a pleasure to see you, Josh. And you know, for the, for the audience out there who's wondering, how did you get to be who you are today? Maybe we can start with how we usually start, which is, what did you study in college? You know, I went to Stanford and I did a program there we called Symbolic Systems, which is really uh, an interesting combination of psychology, philosophy, linguistics, and computer science. And the reason I got sucked into it is I love to think about what we can build with technology, but rather than just how to make technology work, it's really the human side of like how people think, how people interact with technology, and how to actually build things that really mesh with people. And you know, I got so interested in doing that. You know, my resume objective when I graduated from college and was sending it out to try to get jobs was simply to create great technology that changes people's lives. And like that's all I want to do. And I, I really love this combination of the human side of things, um, psychology and philosophy, combined with understanding enough about how to build something that you could make it work. And you, you mentioned that you send out your resumes and everything, so that, that part probably is frustrating, right? And yeah. what, what did you do? What was your first thing? What was the first thing you did? You know, I, uh, when I was coming out of college, it was 1997, uh, the internet was, was just starting to go up into that first bubble, and there were a lot of companies that were already public that were big, like Yahoo and eBay and Amazon, and I wanted to find something that was not quite public yet, and also in my hometown of Seattle. I grew up in Tacoma, which is near Seattle. And so I found a company called Real Networks that was trying to do the, the future of audio and video on the internet. And they thought, huh, wouldn't it be cool if you could watch audio and video from anywhere on the internet instead of having to turn on a TV or turn on the radio? And it seemed very novel at the time. Now I think it's mainstream, including you listening to this podcast. Um, and so I, I sent in my resume, didn't really get a response, but it turned out a cousin of mine worked there. And so I asked him to send in my resume and they were like, oh, we're not really hiring college kids yet, but but we'll take a look, and I met them, and they ended up making me an offer uh, to come join as one of the first sort of new college grads, you know, not from Seattle area, University of Washington. So what was the, the interview question? I mean, you must have, you must have nailed it. I mean, what, what was the question that you were like, okay, I got them with this one. What, what, what was it? No, I can't even remember that interview at all, except that uh, there was a couple coding things that made me go up to a whiteboard and, and, uh, and, and try to write code and show that I knew what I was talking about. And you know, I think that's like when you're really trying to hire engineers, I still think that's the best way to do it is, is asking people just to write a little bit of code and talk to you how they think. Doesn't show you that they're, you know, don't try to trick them with some ingenious problem that you can only do if you know some special algorithmic match, but just writing something that's just hard enough that you'll see how somebody thinks and how somebody breaks down a problem step by step. And if people can do that in a way that's pretty articulate, the chances they can be a good engineer on your team are pretty high. So, what was the first project you worked on then? Like once you were in the door, you were just handed your, you know, your cubicle or whatnot, and then you off you went. And what was the first thing you worked on? Yeah, it was this product called Real Producer, and Real Producer was the way that you took any AVI, which were video files, on your desktop or live capture from a video card plugged into your computer and pushed out a real audio or real video stream. And so we were really just making it. The, the tools that let everybody who had content get it into the real media format that it could then be streamed out to the rest of the web. You had to do all this pre-preparation or, you know, if you think about it, I just invested in a company called Meerkat that's doing live video broadcasting for your phone. Real Producer was really that back in 1997 where you plugged a video cable into the back of your computer and out went uh, a live stream out to the internet. Wow. And so, 
you know, you can start seeing where some of the elements of your investment thesis now was from those early days. So what happened right after that? What, what, after you, you were there for a while, what, where did you move from from Real? Yeah. Well, you know, what happened to me at Real was really interesting. I started as an engineer, I was just writing code, Windows code, if people remember how to program on, on Windows clients. Um, and, you know, pretty soon, um, because I love to think about the whole system and not just the thing I was working on, I got promoted to be a lead and then a manager, a sort of a team of you know 12 to 15 people who were kind of a combination of the product managers and the developers building it. My coding time went from 100% down to like 10%. I would still go tinker and fix bugs and build a couple things in my little areas that I, that I loved, but most of my time was spent managing and building the team. And what I started to realize was the decisions that get made on the business side of how to build software actually have an even bigger impact over what the team builds and how the product actually works in the market. And I would start going to meetings with a bunch of other executives and they'd have Excel spreadsheets that would show me decisions that they were making that were tied to money and I would think they were terrible decisions for what I thought the right product experience would be. And, and rather than thinking, oh, they must be right, I thought I need to go learn Excel so that I could go try to make the same decisions that they were making but understand the right things for the user and the product. So I think you know, not, a, not many of us use Real Player, unfortunately, anymore. I think a lot of it came down to decisions that were sort of short-term focused versus long-term best for the user. Um, you know, and, 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 as, and so I decided to go to business school. And what I realized quickly was, Business school was great and I actually learned a lot in one semester, but really I just needed to go work at different companies that had slightly different kind of user-centric views that really matched the way I thought about building products. I ended up getting a job at LinkedIn uh, when it was about 15 people, and as I thought about staying in business school or going to join LinkedIn, I, I couldn't help but go join LinkedIn. And so early days of LinkedIn, I mean, now we know it as like sort of the behemoth social network where everyone's connecting and in a conference. But back in those days, was it was it like a more approachable thing? How was the DNA of the, of the culture? What was that like? You know, it's it's hard to imagine. I met Reid Hoffman. I, the reason I got into LinkedIn, by the way, is I'd done, he had done that same symbolic systems program at Stanford. Uh, he and the, the founding CTO of LinkedIn. So when I sent in my, my information to try to meet them, uh, they reacted positively to me having done the same program and at least started the conversation. You know, when I met Reed, he he walked me through the model for LinkedIn and said, look, every professional knows a ton of people and if we knew who the people that we knew more actively and knew who they knew, our business lives would be a lot more efficient and effective. So we're going to go try to capture and grow by capturing everybody's network and over time we'll build more value and usage for them and we'll be able to build real businesses on top of this. So in the early days, we called this growth usage revenue or GER. And in the early days, we focused solely on growth. How do we get you to realize that the power of capturing your network on LinkedIn today will be value for you at the time that you need it? And some people had value immediately. They needed to hire somebody. They needed to go... Um, find a job, they wanted to make a business contact the right company, but most people didn't. And so we spent a lot of time with the product tuning the virality so we could just get you in and get you to stay in and get you to connect to people that you know, feel comfortable connecting to people that you know so that your network would have latent demand. And then for that small group of people who had real business need for their network, we tried to build them better and better search tools from the beginning that made that more effective. But we knew that we had to just nail growth and virality before we'd get to the long term of LinkedIn. So we were laser focused. Like we spent time A-B testing the viral loop at like micro levels in order to make it work because we knew that, that for us to be successful long term, that's where we had to go. So you were the original growth hacker. Uh, we were, we, I learned a lot from reading the team there, uh, exactly. And when, when you started off in LinkedIn, what role were you in? Like what, what exactly, what, what function or division? 
Yes, I was the first product manager that they hired sort of after the founding team, you know, where really my job was, was not writing code anymore, not managing an engineering team, but for the first time I was really writing specs and helping come up with the ideas that we actually go build together. Okay, and so how, how long how long did you, did you stay in that role or, or move up and down? You know, I spent a couple years at LinkedIn, not quite two, um, and I started, we launched LinkedIn Jobs during my time there, which was the first sort of so, um, vertical product built on top of a social network, and we were basically trying to tell LinkedIn users, hey, if you don't go into the jobs area, you're not on LinkedIn looking for a job, so that we would get more people to actually sign up for LinkedIn. Um, the, uh, I started going to HR conferences, and, and what hit me was, I realized I loved LinkedIn, the opportunity, and the company, and Reed as a founder, but I didn't love working on HR products every day, and I wanted to find something that I felt a little more personally attached to. At Real Networks, I had gotten to work on the future of audio video that you like listen to all your CDs, or listen to all music you can find on the internet, and I loved working on that product and using it. LinkedIn, I just wasn't as excited about HR software, which LinkedIn has become so much more than that, I'm a total idiot. But, um, so I ended up leaving for a company called Zazzle that sort of got me really excited about the future of commerce. And as I got to know them, I looked at LinkedIn, I said, LinkedIn's going to be a great company. I vested some shares here, but I can go on to Zazzle and really help build the product team and the product opportunity for this idea that you can take any digital image or design or graphic and get a physical product made within 24 hours. And you can design something that other people can buy or design something you can buy for yourself. And just this idea of, of bits to atoms got me so captivated even more than staying at LinkedIn. And so at this point in time, you've had Real, you have Zazzle, you know, you have LinkedIn. What was your developing thesis around the good culture and the bad cultures, and, and how has that shaped your, your sort of views of company development now as an investor? You know, you know, we talk about company culture a lot, but I think the thing, the, the, the trend that's been true for everything I've worked on is that the companies are pointed towards a massive North Star. And what's attracted me to all these companies and kept me there working excitedly you know, even Real Networks, which is no longer the dominant player in audio video, or Zazzle, which is doing very well, but isn't the sort of, isn't necessarily a, a dominant commerce, you know, Friday. I think they're the best for sort of true custom one-off on-demand commerce. Um, you know, uh, and then LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, where I also worked, is that they, even when we were very small, we said, if we're right, the whole world will use us. And the world will use us in this way, and we're going to be a massive company. And every single decision, every single conversation, every single person who got hired had that same, just, you know, belief and almost sort of like passion for going to create this thing and deliver it to the world. And knowing that we could help so many people do things better, live better, if we were right and brought the product to everybody. And how often did the CEO drive that? How often was it like you had meetings weekly? How much, because it sounds like you, you lived it, but how did that disseminate itself to the employees? You know, I think, I think it, all these companies, there were, there were monthly, and then as Facebook um, and Twitter got larger, uh, you know, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, sometimes quarterly meetings, where you had access to kind of everybody, and, and the conversations were always grounded in this big vision. Every review you did, you know, it always came back to like the, okay, but will this be big enough? Will this impact enough people? I think when you just, when that becomes a fabric of the company, it changes the way everybody thinks and it makes them ambitious. And it doesn't always work. Like I'm around plenty of companies now on the venture side that don't always reach that exact massive vision. They'll tell you on the journey, as long as you're always fighting towards it, you know, that's where the, the real excitement lies. And so after, after Zazzle, what was the next step for you? So, so after Zazzle, um, Look, I loved Zazzle, but I got two speeding tickets driving home the same month from work, uh, and you could just tell how stressed out I was. 
my wife said, you know, maybe you need to go to a bigger company. I'd like you home more, et cetera. And I started, that, the, the two speeding tickets finally convinced me maybe I needed to go to a little bit bigger company and, and, and you know, think about sort of something that's a little bit more stable. And, and so I ended up joining Facebook, which at 500 people felt like a bigger company than Zazzle, which had gone maybe 20 to 100. LinkedIn, they'd gone from like 15 to 50 in my time there. Real networks that had gone from maybe 300 to 1,000. Facebook was like my, my version of a big company. Um, which it wasn't that big, but it was a lot more sustained and built up. And, and I got to go work on the platform there. And I said to myself, look, maybe I'm not going to be running a company or leading one in the same way that you know, I potentially was at smaller companies, but I can go be part of Facebook, which even in 2008, I was like, this should be for a billion people and our platform should be the way that every consumer application is built. And so I got a job to go work on the platform there. So now, I mean, we're, we're seeing like a, a really who's who on your on your sort of history of, yeah. of understanding networks, understanding social, understanding customer acquisition. So that it explains a lot why you, you're very enticed by Meerkat and other yeah. opportunities. So what happened after Facebook? So I love Facebook, but I ended up in a job that was slightly different than what I thought. I'm more of a product guy who loves to work with engineers. And at Facebook, I was working on our platform team, working with a lot of other companies to help them leverage our Facebook platform. And I got in, in, uh, enchanted by Twitter. And over 2009, I just couldn't, found myself using Twitter more and more than Facebook and said, I can't leave Facebook. It's going to be an incredible company. And oh my God, it's become an even more incredible company than I ever envisioned. Um, but I said, but if I, if I could go work on Twitter, that would be one that I would leave Facebook for. Oh, I got to know those guys over six months and eventually they made me an offer to come join as one of their very first product managers. And, and I got to start the user growth team. And that was, that was an incredible ride for me and really, really where I kind of felt like when I landed at Twitter, back in product, back on user growth, I was like, I could be here forever. Look, at this point in the interview, I'm starting to feel like if there's a founder out there who's looking for an investor with knowledge in both social networks and scaling and growth hacking, it's you. I mean, you basically jumped from every single major platform to every single major platform. So, all right, so if we fast forward past Twitter, what, what happened after that? You know, so, so Twitter went through a whole set of changes at the executive level. And, and it just ended up not being a place for me to kind of have a long-term career and sort of within the new regime. You know, and so I ended up thinking about, you know what, at this age, I have two options. One is go find another job like I've done my whole career and fortunately had been, you know, successful and gotten to work on a bunch of just really amazing product with amazing people. Or I was like, is there a job that actually harnesses what I do better, which is help great companies get out of the gate and get things really rolling and then, you know, let them roll. And in the past, I would move on, but maybe there's a way that I can sort of be around and help um, and really leverage that. And I thought, you know, I don't know if venture capital is the right job for me, but I'd love to go give it a shot. And Reed Hoffman, who had hired me at LinkedIn back in 2004, uh, was uh, you know, running, you know, was one of the, the senior partners at Greylock Partners. And he and the team there said, hey, why don't you come hang out with us? Um, and we'll figure it out. And so I joined them a couple years ago to kind of explore VC venture capital for me and uh, sort of get to know them better, um, you know, as a, what it would be like to be a real venture capitalist and what it would be like for them to have me on the team. And a couple of years in, you know, it's worked out and they've, they've asked me to be a partner and that's where I'm at now. So I'm going to ask you the question that probably every single founder would love for me to ask you. In, in, in some ways it's very simple, but it's just, they hear it a lot and it's, it's a traction question. And you know, you have so much visibility as to what actually moves a needle, what's a meaningful amount, both in terms of growth rate, but also in absolute numbers. And a lot of people who are starting anything that involves a network effect is probably wondering, like, when am I going to get somebody to be interested in what I'm doing from a traction point of view? Maybe you can provide some guidance there. Yeah, so, you know, when I'm looking at investment, I actually start by working backwards. 
So I start by hearing what the founder's trying to do and what they really want to become, and I want them to paint the picture for the largest possible network and why you know, a billion people should be using their product and you know, more than a billion, and what it would mean in the world when more than a billion people are using their product. And then we work backwards to say, okay, so are there hints of that happening now? Is there a reason why, why right now we have a chance to be the company that can get to that many users? You know, um, and and why, why now means why not yesterday? And what's changed either technologically or culturally that will make it happen now? And I, I'll give a quick example of Meerkat. Meerkat wasn't about the numbers because it was you know, two months into it and those are very hard to get predictive, but I always believe that there could be, in, you know, having worked at Real Networks, there could be a big live video company in the future that lets us all connect around it. And to answer why now, technologically it works for the very first time, and culturally we're finally ready because having cameras, microphones, et cetera, out in the world, three years ago even might have seemed creepy when one of your friends were doing it. Now we're so used to it from Instagram and Snapchat and other, and Facebook and Twitter and other things that having it to be, oh, this is actually live broadcast on the internet isn't that much of a crazy leap. So I thought culturally and technologically it can work now. And then I looked and said Meerkat has just a little bit of attachment and momentum with that opportunity right now. That's a wave that you can double down on and ride to be a big company, but it wasn't about any absolute numbers or absolute traction. Yeah, and but I, I would say though that that does not seem to be the case for most investors. I mean, that's you very much invested in the story of what it could be, and with your background, I could see why you projected as to why this would be successful. You know, with your experience with Real. But now if we scale back and we say, how about vertical social networks? How about anything where maybe the ARPU of a of a customer is actually higher than sort of a horizontal network? But how how does does an investor, especially an investor like Greylock, look at the the absolute numbers in a way of saying, actually, I don't get this. It's not for me. I didn't work in the companies that did this. But maybe there's something here. Yes, I can't comment on most other investors because I don't know totally how they think. Um, but I will say, look, what, what we look for when we're looking at traction is not broad numbers at all, but I look, at, look for density. I look for whether or not you've tackled some users who've become religiously addicted to your product and it's replaced many other things in their life or augmented other things in their life. I look for when you get one user to get a whole community of them where they're using it together. In social products, it's so fundamentally important that we're using these products collectively, otherwise it becomes less relevant. And so, so we're really looking for some people using it a lot more than lots of people using it a little. It's very easy to get fooled by various metrics that look like lots of downloads or lots of registrations or whatever, 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 that's very different than this group has already made it on their home screen and they're using this product every day to do these things in their life. And I believe that's transferable to the next 10,000, 100,000, 10 million, 100 million people because of this, this, and this, because I've already gotten this group locked down. And then in the case of, of you know, if, if it's a vertical social network, like we have to look for how big can it get and how much money per user can you get. Yeah. We know on things like Facebook and Twitter, they can get arbitrarily large hundreds of millions of people and you can make some money on every single user who's there. In certain, you know, Netflix makes, you know, for every single person who subscribes to Netflix, they make, you know, 10 bucks a month. So it's 120 bucks a year. There's a very different cost, you know, and so, so it really just depends on how big and how much money per user. Okay, maybe a, a funny personal question, but like if, you have to use Meerkat on a day-to-day, -day, not work-related. Yeah. What would you be Meerkatting? What, what do you like to do on your spare time that you'd be like, I'm going to Meerkat this for other people to, to, to view? 
you know, I think my life's pretty boring, so I'm not sure that I would really feel that excited to meerkat what I'm doing. But I can tell you this, like if I really had nothing to do and I was bored at home, I have two options. I can go on Facebook and Twitter and, and other things and kind of see what other people are talking about and it's very asynchronous, or I can open up Meerkat and be with other people and be in the moment and be live. And if I can find a group of people and an interesting conversation to be part of, I find that that's much more emotionally engaging than just looking at your pictures or just looking at your, your series of tweets. And I think that that sort of being you know less alone with other people is just so powerful. Yeah. No, fair enough, fair enough. Well, we always like to end with a, an opportunity for you to shamelessly plug something other than Meerkat and Greylock, something, anything, a charity, any cause, a t-ball team, whatever what it is that you feel passionate about. You know, um, right now uh, I'm thinking about putting my daughter into school. And, and the thing that, you know, we've gone through this whole whole debate over, like, schools and how they're, how they're doing and whether kind of local and public schools you know, are going to be around for a long time. And I would just encourage everyone, like, go support your public schools. You know, vote, vote yes on the taxes. Support the teachers in your community because I think that's the fabric that when we think about the next 50 years of our country is going to be so important. And so I'm just a big believer in, in supporting public schools. Fair enough. Thank you, Josh. Uh, any final words? I don't know. Thanks, Carlos, for having me. And thanks, everybody, if you listened this far. Uh, maybe you should go on to Meerkat instead. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, guys. Till next time. Bye.